Section 4 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825 to 1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 14 Compulsory Enlightenment and Increased Oppression Part 1 1. Enlightenment as a Means of Assimilation There was a brief moment of respite when, in the phrase of the Russian poet, the fighter's hand was tired of killing. The Russian government suddenly felt the need of passing over from the medieval forms of patronage to a more enlightened and perfected method. Among the leading statesmen of Russia were men, such as the Minister of Public Instruction, Sergius Ubarov, who were well acquainted with Western European ways and fully aware of the fact that the reactionary governments of Austria and Prussia had invented several contrivances for handling the Jewish problem, which might be usefully applied in their own country. Though anxious to avoid all contact with the rotten West and being in constant fear of European political movements, the Russian government was nevertheless ready to siege upon the relics of enlightened absolutism, which was still stalking about, particularly in Austria, in the early decades of the 19th century. As far as Prussia was concerned, the abundance of assimilated and converted Jews in that country and their attempts at religious reform, which to a missionary's imagination were identical with the change of front in favor of Christianity, had a fascination of its own for the Russian dignitaries. No wonder then that the government yielded to the temptation to use some of the contrivances of Western European reaction while holding in reserve the Polish knout of genuine Russian manufacture. In 1840, the Council of State was again busy discussing the Jewish question, this time from a theoretic point of view. The reports of the provincial administrator, in particular that of Bivikov, governor-general of Kiev, dwelled on the fact that even the Statute of 1835 had not succeeded in correcting the Jews. The root of the evil lay rather in their religious fanaticism and separatism, which could only be removed by changing their inner life. The ministers of public instruction and of the interior, Ubarov and Stroganov, took occasion to expound the principles of their new system of correction before the Council of State. The discussions culminated in a remarkable memorandum submitted by the Council to Nicholas I. In this document, the government confesses its importance in grappling with the defects of the Jewish masses, such as the absence of useful labor, their harmful pursuit of petty trading, vagrancy, and obstinate aloofness from general civic life. Its failure, the government ascribes to the fact that the evil of Jewish exclusiveness 
has hitherto not been attacked at its root, the latter being embedded in the religious and communal organization of the Jews. The fountainhead of all misfortunes is the Talmud, which fosters in the Jews utmost contempt toward the nations of other faiths and implants in them the desire to rule over the rest of the world. As a result of the obnoxious teachings of the Talmud, the Jews cannot but regard their presence in any other land except Palestine as a sojourn in captivity, and they are held to obey their own authorities rather than a strange government. This explains the omnipotence of the Kahals, which, contrary to the law of the state, employ secret means to uphold their autonomous authority both in communal and judicial matters, using for this purpose the uncontrolled sums of the special Jewish revenue, the meat tax. The education of the Jewish youth is entrusted to Melamed, a class of domestic teachers immersed in profoundest ignorance and superstition, and under the influence of these fanatics, the children imbibe pernicious notions of intolerance towards other nations. Finally, the special dress worn by the Jews helps to keep them apart from the surrounding Christian population. The Russian government had adopted a series of protective measures against the Jews without producing any marked effect. Even the conscription statute had succeeded to a limited extent only in alerting the habits of the Jews. Mere promotion of agriculture and of Russian schooling had been found inadequate. The expulsions from the villages had proved equally fruitless. The Jews, to be sure, have been ruined, but the conditions of the rustics had shown no improvements. It is evident, therefore, the Council declares, that restrictions which go only halfway or are externally imposed by the police are not sufficient to direct this huge mass of people towards useful occupations. With the patience of martyrs, the Jews of Western Europe had endured the most atrocious persecutions and had yet succeeded in keeping their national type intact until the government took the trouble to inquire more deeply into the causes separating the Jews from general civic life so as to be able to attack the causes themselves. After blurting out the truth that the government's ultimate aim was the obliteration of the Jewish individuality and modestly yielding the palm in inflicting the most atrocious persecutions upon the Jews to Western Europe, where, after all, they were receding into the past, while in Russia they were still the order of the day. The Council of State proceeds to consider the example set by foreign countries and lingers with particular affection over the Prussian Regulation of 1797, issued by that country for its recently occupied Polish provinces, the Prussian Emancipation Edict of 1812. The memorandum very shrewdly passes over in silence and on the system of compulsory schooling adopted by Austria. Taking its clue from the West, the Council delineates three ways of bringing about a radical transformation of these people. 1. Cultural reforms. 
such as the establishment of special secular schools for Jewish youth, the fight against the old-fashioned heders and melamets, the transformation of the rabbinate, and the prohibition of Jewish dress. 2. Abolition of Jewish autonomy, consisting in the dissolution of the kahals and the modification of the system of special Jewish taxation. 3. Increase of Jewish disabilities by segregating from their midst all those who have no established domicile and are without a definite financial status with a view of subjecting them to disciplinary correction through expulsions, legal restrictions, intensified conscription, and similar police measures. In this manner, the memorandum concludes, it may be hoped that by coordinating all the particulars of this proposition with the fundamental idea of reforming the Jewish people and by taking compulsory measures to aid, the goal of the government will be attained. As a result of this expose of the Council of State, an imperial rescript was issued on December 27, 1840, calling for the establishment of a committee for defining measures looking to the radical transformation of the Jews of Russia. Count Kiselev, Minister of the Crown Domains, was appointed chairman. The other members included the Ministers of Public Instructions and the Interior, the Assistant Minister of Finance, the Director of the Second Section of the Imperial Chancellery, and the Chief of the Political Police were the dreaded Third Section. The latter was entrusted with special task to keep a watchful eye on the intrigues and actions which may be resorted to by the Jews during the execution of this matter. Moreover, the expose of the Council of State, which was to serve as the program of the new committee, was sent out to the Governors-General of the Western region confidentially for personal information and consideration. The reformatory campaign against the Jews was thus started without any formal declaration of war, under the guise of secrecy and surrounded by police precautions. The procedure to be followed by the committee was to consider the project in the order indicated in the memorandum. First, enlightenment, then abolition of autonomy, and finally, disabilities. 2. Uvarov and Lilienthal an elaborate expose on the question of enlightenment was composed and laid before the committee by the Minister of Public Instruction, Sergius Uvarov. Having acquired the bon ton of Western Europe, Uvarov prefaces his statement by the remark that the European governments have abandoned the method of persecution and compulsion in solving the Jewish question, and that this period has also arrived for us. Nations, observes Uvarov, are not exterminated, least of all the nation which stood at the foot of Calvary. From what follows, it seems evident that the minister is still in hopes that the gentle measures of enlightenment may attract the Jews towards the religion which derives its origin from Calvary. The best among the Jews, he states, 
are conscious of the fact that one of the principal causes of their humiliation lies in the perverted interpretation of their religious tradition that the Talmud demoralized and continues to demoralize their co-religionists. But nowhere is the influence of the Talmud so potent among us in Russia and in the Kingdom of Poland. This influence can be counteracted only by enlightenment, and the government can do no better than to act in the spirit that animates the handful of the best among them. The re-education of the learned section among the Jews involves at the same time the purification of their religious conceptions. What purification the author of the memorandum has in mind may be gathered from his casual remark that the Jews, who maintain their separatism, are rightly afraid of reforms. For is it not the religion of the cross the purest symbol of universal citizenship? This, however, Uvarov cautiously adds, should not be made public, for it would have no other effect except that of arousing from the very beginning the opposition of the majority of the Jews against the projected schools. Officially, the reform must confine itself to the opening in all the cities of the Jewish pale of elementary and secondary schools in which Jewish children should be taught the Russian language, secular sciences, Hebrew, and religion according to the Holy Writ. The instruction should be given in Russian, though owing to the shortage in teachers familiar with this language, the use of German is to be admitted temporarily. The teachers in the lower grade schools shall provisionally be recruited from among melamets who can be depended upon. Those in the higher grade schools shall be chosen from among the modernized Jews of Russia and Germany. The committee endorsed Uvarov's scheme in its principal features and urgently recommended that, in order to prepare the Jewish masses for the impending reform, a special propagandist be sent into the Pale of Settlement for the purpose of acquainting this obstreperous nation with the benevolent intentions of the government. Such a propagandist was soon found in the person of young German Jew, Dr. Max Lilienthal, a resident of Riga. Lilienthal, who was a native of Bavaria, he was born in Munich in 1815, and the German university graduate was a typical representative of the German-Jewish intellectual of that period, a champion of assimilation and of moderate religious reform. Lilienthal had scarcely completed his university course when he was offered by a group of educated Jews in Riga the post of preacher and director of the new local Jewish school, one of the three modern Jewish schools then in existence in Russia. In a short time, Lilienthal managed to raise the instruction in secular and Jewish subjects to such a high standard of modernity that he elicited a glowing tribute from Uvarov. The minister was struck by the idea that the Riga school might serve as a model for the net of schools with which he was about to cover the whole pale of settlement and Lilienthal seemed the logical man for carrying out the planned reforms. 
In February 1841, Lilienthal was summoned to St. Petersburg, where he had a prolonged conversation with Uvarov. According to the testimony of the official Russian sources, he tried to persuade the minister to abolish all private schools, the headers, and to forbid all private teachers, the melamets, to teach even temporarily in the projected new schools, and to import, instead, the whole teaching staff from Germany. Lilienthal himself tells us in his memoir that he made bold to remind the minister that all obstacles in the path of the desired re-education of the Russian Jews would disappear were the Tsar to grant them complete emancipation. To this, the minister retorted that the initiative must come from the Jews themselves, who first must try to deserve the favor of the sovereign. At any rate, Lilienthal accepted the proffered task. He was commissioned to tour the Pale of Settlement to organize there the few isolated progressive Jews, the lovers of enlightenment, or masculine, as they styled themselves, and to propagate the idea of school reform among the Orthodox Jewish masses. While setting out his journey, Lilienthal himself did not fully realize the difficulties of the task he had undertaken. He was to instill confidence in the benevolent intentions of the government into the heart of a people which, by an uninterrupted series of persecutions and cruel restrictions, had been reduced to the level of periods. He was to make them believe that the government was well-wisher of Jewish children, those same children who at that very time were hunted like wild beasts by the captors in the streets of the Pale, who were turned by the thousands into soldiers, deported into outlying provinces, and belabored in such a manner that scarcely half of them remained alive and barely a tenth remained within the Jewish fold. Guided by an infallible instinct, the plain Jewish people formulated their own simplified theory to account for the step taken by the government. Up to the present, their children had been baptized through the barracks. In the future, they would be baptized through the additional medium of the school. Lilienthal arrived in Vilna in the beginning of 1842 and, calling a meeting of the Jewish community, explained the plan conceived by the government and by Uvarov, the friend of the Jews. He was listened to with unveiled distrust. The elders, Lilienthal tells us in his memoirs, sat there absorbed in deep contemplation. Some of them, leaning on their silver-adorned steps or smoothing their long beards, seemed as if agitated by honest thoughts and justifiable suspicions. Others were engaging in a lively but quiet discussions on the principles involved. Such put to me the ominous question, Doctor, are you fully acquainted with the leading principles of our government? You are a stranger. Do you know what you are undertaking? The cause pursued against all denominations but the Greek proves clearly that the government intends to have but one church in the whole empire, that it has in view only its own future strength and greatness and not our own future prosperity. 
we are sorry to state that we put no confidence in the new measures proposed by the Ministerial Council and that we look with gloomy foreboding into the future. In his reply, Lilienthal advanced an impressive array of arguments. What will you gain by your resistance to the new measures? It will only irritate the government and will determine it to pursue its system of repression, while at present you are offered an opportunity to prove that the Jews are not enemies of culture and deserve a better lot. When questioned as to whether the Jewish community had any guarantee that the government plan was not a veiled attempt to undermine the Jewish religion, Lilienthal, by way of reply, solemnly pledged himself to throw off his mission the moment he would find that the government associated with it secret intentions against Judaism. The circle of enlightened Jews in Vilna pledged its support to Lilienthal, and he left full of faith in the success of his enterprise. A cruel disappointment awaited him in Minsk. Here, the arguments which the opponent advanced in a passionate debate at the public meeting were of a utilitarian rather than of an idealistic nature. So long as the government does not accord equal rights to the Jews, general culture will only be his misfortune. The plain uneducated Jew does not balk at the low occupation of factor or peddler, for, drawing comfort and joy from his religion, he is reconciled to his miserable lot. But the Jew, who is educated and enlightened, and yet has no means of occupying an honorable position in the country, will be moved by a feeling of discontent to renounce his religion, and no honest father will think of giving an education to his children, which may lead to such an issue. The opponents of official enlightenment in Minsk were not content with advancing arguments that appealed to reason. Both at the meetings and in the street, Lilienthal was the target of insulting remarks from the crowd. On his return to St. Petersburg, Lilienthal presented Uvarov with a report which convinced the minister that the execution of the school reform was a difficult but not a hopeless task. On June 22, 1842, an imperial rescript was issued placing all Jewish schools, including the headers and yeshivas, under the supervision of the Ministry of Public Instruction. Simultaneously, it was announced that the government had summoned a commission of four rabbis to meet in St. Petersburg for the purpose of supporting the efforts of the government in the realization of the school reform. This committee was to serve Russian Jewry as a security that the school reforms would not be directed against the Jewish religion. At the same time, Lilienthal was ordered to proceed again to the Pale of Settlement. He was directed to tour principally through the southwestern and new Russian governments and exert his influence upon the Jewish masses in accordance with the instructions received from the ministry. Before setting out on his journey, Lilienthal published a Hebrew pamphlet under the title Magit Yeshua, Herald of Salvation, 
which called upon the Jewish communities to comply readily with the wishes of the government. In his private letters addressed to prominent Jews, Lilienthal expressed the assurance that the school ukase was merely the forerunner of a series of measures for the betterment of the civic status of the Jews. This time, Lilienthal met with a greater measure of success than on his first journey. In several large centers, such as Berdichev, Odessa, Kishinev, he was accorded a friendly welcome and assured of the cooperation of the communities in making the new school system a success. Filled with fresh hopes, Lilienthal returned in 1843 to St. Petersburg to participate in the work of the Rabbinical Commission, which had been convoked by the government and was now holding its sessions in the capital from May till August. The makeup of the Rabbinical Commission did not fully justify its appellation. Only two ecclesiastics were on it, the president of the Talmudic Academy of Volodzin, Rabbi Itzok Isaac Itzaki, and the leader of the White Russian Hasidim, Rabbi Mendel Schneerson, while the southwestern region and New Russia had sent two laymen, the banker helpering of Berdichev and the director of the Jewish school in Odessa, Bezalel Stern. The two representatives of the clergy put up a warm defense for the traditional Jewish school, the header, endeavoring to save it from the ministerial supervision, which aimed at its annihilation. Finally, a compromise was effected. The traditional header was to be left intact for the time being, but the proposed crown school was to be given full scope in competing with it. The commission even went so far as to work out a program of Jewish studies for the new type of school. The labors of the rabbinical commission were submitted to the Jewish committee under the chairmanship of Kezelev and discussed by it in connection with the general plan of Russian school reform. It was necessary to find resultant between two opposing forces, between the desire of the government to substitute the Russian crown school for the old-fashioned Jewish school and the determination of Russian Jewry to preserve its own school as a bulwark against the official institutions foisted upon it. The government was bent on carrying out its policy and found itself compelled to resort to diplomatic contrivances. On November 13, 1844, Nicholas signed two enactments, the one a public ukase relating to the education of the Jewish youth, the other a confidential rescript addressed to the Minister of Public Instruction. The public enactment called for the establishment of Jewish schools of two grades, corresponding to the courses of instruction in the parochial and county schools, and ordered the opening of two rabbinical institutes for the training of rabbis and teachers. The teaching staff in the Jewish crown schools was to consist both of Jews and Christians. The graduates of these schools were granted a reduction in the term of military service. The execution of the school reforms in the respective localities 
was placed in the hands of school boards composed of Jews and Christians, which were to be appointed provisionally for that purpose. In the secret rescript, the tone was altogether different. There it was stated that the aim pursued in the training of the Jews is that of bringing them nearer to the Christian population and eradicating the prejudices fostered in them by the study of the Talmud. That with the opening of the new schools, the old ones were to be gradually closed or reorganized. And that as soon as the crown schools have been established in sufficient numbers, attendance at them would become obligatory that the superintendents of the new schools should only be chosen from among Christians, that every possible effort should be made to put obstacles in the way of granting teaching licenses to the Melamites who lacked a secular education, that after the lapse of 20 years, no one should hold the position of teacher or rabbi without having obtained his degree from one of the official rabbinical schools. It was not long, however, before the secret came out. The Russian Jews were terror-stricken at the thought of being robbed of their ancient school autonomy and decided to adopt the well-tried tactics of passive resistance to all government measures. The school reform was making slow progress. The opening of the elementary schools and of the two rabbinical institutes in Vilna and Zitomir did not begin until 1847, and for the first few years they dragged on a miserable existence. Lilienthal himself disappeared from the scene without waiting for the consummation of the reform plan. In 1845, he suddenly abandoned his post at the Ministry of Public Instruction and left Russia forever. A more intimate acquaintance with the intentions of the leading government circles had made Lilienthal realize that the apprehensions voiced in his presence by the old men of the Vilna community were well-founded, and he thought it his duty to fulfill the pledge given by him publicly. From the land of serfdom, where, to use Lilienthal's own world, the only way for the Jew to make peace with the government was by bowing down before the Greek cross. He went to the land of freedom, the United States of America. There he occupied important pulpits in New York and Cincinnati, where he died in 1882. End of section 4